precious Jesus, ever-blessed Redeemer of our souls, our prayerful hearts are raised to thee in this hour of far-flung worship to thank thee for the accomplished atonement and the perfect pardon wrought for us and all men in thy cross of agony and blood. Preserve this glorious truth for us at all costs. Deal with us according to thy mercy as thou wilt, but always and ever keep this blessed knowledge of thy full and free pardon for our many transgressions uppermost in our hearts and souls. And send us thy spirit to accompany our message, so that many may behold thy cross with eyes of faith, and in its pure mercy penitently find forgiveness, grace, life, light, and salvation. Without this glorious gospel we are hopeless and lost, but with faith in our accomplished redemption heaven is ours. Grant us this confidence, O Jesus, our only but all-atoning Savior. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills and Zelwyn Heidi here, gathered today to talk about the life, times, and lessons of the Reverend Dr. Walter A. Meyer. Zelwyn, how's it going? It's going pretty well. We actually had a snowstorm here a couple days ago, if you can believe it. That's North Dakota for you. And so this past Sunday, I had to drive down in slush and sleet. But I, it's all gone now, and hopefully we should be getting to a little bit warmer season. Hopefully. We had a slight cold snap this week, but we're supposed to be back in the 80s toward the end of the week, so that'll be fun. The garden will, you know, come back to life, I hope. <laughs> or at least only have to contend with the rabbits and the raccoons. We we shall see. you got to put up a fence, Willie. Honey, you keep saying that, you know. Uh, <laughs> got to get that barrier up. <laughs> I, I have a, a very large fence around my garden. I don't think I'm going to have any deer problems. I do have some seeds in the ground that I'm hoping will sprout in the next couple of days, but we'll see what happens. Well, you know, enjoy your two months of spring before the winter sets in. Hopefully you can get it grown. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> we'll see. So today's topic is going to be pretty fun. What we're doing is looking at a very significant figure, not only in Missouri Synod history, but in American Christianity at large, and really in many ways in world history at large. He he looms over us, does he not, Dr. Meyer? Yeah, he really does, because if nothing else, we're dealing with a figure that's not only important for, like you said, Missouri Synod history, but because of his impact with the beginning of the Lutheran Hour and the foundation of KFUO, really becoming a radio superstar in the very early days of radio. Well, now, for those who don't know, what is KFUO? KFUO, of course, is the uh, radio station that the Missouri Synod runs. It's still producing content today. But Dr. Meyer was the one who got all of it, I mean, was instrumental in getting that all going. And because of that, he got that going and he had the impact that he had. He was basically preaching to millions in the very early days of radio. Right. And this this subject is really inter a lot of intersectionality here for me. There's radio theory at work, there's radio history, there's American religious history, and of course Lutheran history and the person of, of Dr. Meyer himself, all things that interest me deeply. So I've really just been enjoying the research phase for this episode. So I'm excited to dig into it. Meyer is in some sense a polarizing figure in the Missouri Synod today. Would you say that's true? Unfortunately, yes, it is true. I think it's because of certain aspects of who he was and how he did things. Many view him as a, like you say, a controversial figure. But I don't think he has to be. I think sometimes we're dealing with a case of, I don't know, how, how do you want to put it, Willie? A, a lack of historical appreciation? Yeah, perhaps. You know, reading him through a lens or not actually dealing with his actual work. Sometimes a reputation is made not based upon what you do, but just about assumptions and then or fables or then myths that kind of crop up. Right. Also, he's a man of a different time, of a different era. We did speak differently. Right. So it's not fair for us to put our definitions on him. It's also it also behooves us to understand the way in which he uses certain words 
as we're going to talk about, like fundamentalist or what's the understanding of the word acceptance right? and, and something like that. He is influential. There is much good to learn from him. And even if you don't want to learn anything theological from him, at least enjoy the story of an interesting life. And a man who publicizes the Missouri Synod like no one else has so far. So we are very much indebted to him. And I, and I think as we go through, we will deal with some of these these controversies and, and some of the objections that are raised. And we're going to take a sober look at them. Realizing, of course, nobody is perfect and we won't agree 100% with the way anyone goes about anything. Right. But a man like this who is such a force in Lutheranism, we really need to examine him and, and see what he was about and see why he had such broad appeal. And then we're going to look at what that, the impact uh, of his life and work was. So all of that said, let's take a look at his biography. There are many sources for the life of Walter Meyer, but none of them quite as thorough as Paul Meyer's book, A Man Spoke, A World Listened, The Story of Walter A. Meyer. That is still available if you want to check that book out. We are leaning in large part on that, although not exclusively on that tome. But that, that is the biography. And I would encourage our listeners, all listeners, to really delve into that biography, if only because it's written in an extremely popular style. It's an entertaining read, certainly. And I think you'll learn a great deal about Dr. Meyer and about his life that we're probably not going to be able to get into all the detail here. I mean, in the, the confines of this. Of yeah, this absolutely. Episode. What we are doing, especially when it comes to his biography, is a, a simple survey. Because time just doesn't permit the thoroughness of uh, a man spoke a world listen a world listened and also that book has the wholesome aspect of being written by his youngest son, the noted scholar Dr. Paul Meyer. So it, rarely do you get a biography written by a son, especially you know something so close to when we lived. And of course, Dr. Meyer, you know, still living. So this is it's very good. I, I think very interesting that we have that that we have that volume for us to check out. Excuse me, I should say that's Paul Meyer still living. It's going to get a little confusing as we talk about this because we have at least three Walter A. Myers, all doctors. We've got <laughs> Paul Myers, a Dr. Myers. So we're, we might use first names and, and some other uh, different identifiers throughout this just so we can be clear. Right. And of course, uh, Dr. Uh, the name Walter Meyer should be familiar to our listeners because we just had his grandson on a few episodes ago for some Old Testament exegesis. So that was that was fun. All right. So Zelwyn, where should we start? Well, I mean, let's let's just talk about his his early life, where he comes from and all that. Uh, immediately, it's interesting. He's <laughs> from his birth, he's a bit different than the typical Missouri Synod theologian of the time. Not born in Germany, born stateside, not born in the Midwest, not born to a little bit earlier immigrants, but born to fairly recent immigrants to the eastern United States. He's born in Boston, Massachusetts in 1893. So already we've got something a little bit different. Yes, son of German immigrants, but also Eastern. Now, why would that be significant for us? Well, I mean, because, I mean, the Missouri Synod, largely up to this point, has been a largely Midwestern thing. And actually, frankly, still is kind of a largely Midwestern denomination. And so dealing with a German immigrants who are settling in a place like Boston is going to, I think, shape the way Dr. Meyer Wham the first, as we might actually call him, is going to look at issues of, you know, what does it mean to be a Lutheran in America? Wouldn't you agree? Right. He is born to German parents, but they insist almost immediately when they get over here in learning English well. So he's raised mostly speaking English. As I understand it, he gets most of his German grammar in school, not in not in the home. So this is going to be really important for him as his ministry builds, where he is dealing with English-speaking American audiences initially. Oddly enough, we're going to see early on he's actually dealing with German-speaking prisoners of war, but eventually as his radio ministry exists and expands is when the American aspect of this becomes important. Anyway... Devout Christian family, and from an early age, he wants to enter the ministry. I believe it's about the age of 12. He's at a missions festival, and here's one of our noted professors preaching about the need for ministers. And so in that early age, he already 
desires the office. So he goes to what is then called Concordia Collegiate Institute in New York, which we would now know as Concordia College, Bronxville. And at the time, that's both a high school and a junior college, the old European model. It's there that he finally learns Latin and Greek. I don't believe that. Yeah, he wouldn't have came in with that, but this is still the old days. You had to learn Greek, Latin, and German. And of course, there he's also first going to be exposed to Hebrew, but I don't believe that he really dives quite in until seminary. At least that's the way our curriculum used to go and really still goes today. So he's valedictorian of Concordia Institute, BA Boston University, 1913. And then from there, he goes to Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. And this is where he really becomes engrossed with the biblical languages, specifically the Old Testament. His being at the seminary is is very interesting. His family is does well. You know, they're they're fairly successful. His father is an organ builder and then becomes a piano builder too, piano tuner, those sorts of things. Nevertheless, it's wondered how he's going to be able to afford all of this education. And he's quite an industrious character, and he sells typewriters and does a few other things to to put himself through seminary. And I believe even even recruits some of his classmates to do it, thus, you know, kind of being at the top of the pyramid, it really worked worked out well for him. <laughs> there, there's story after story of this where he's quite ingenious in the way that he made things work. What you see early on is a tremendous mental aptitude as far as academics are concerned. But you also see a lot of hustle in the man. He isn't right. afraid to work. He is very high energy. He wants to keep going all the time. I think you, you get a, a little taste of that from, you kind of mentioned that he begins delving into the biblical languages. Shortly after seminary, he's going to actually go on to Harvard, correct? Yeah, he's awarded a fellowship in Old Testament studies at Harvard Divinity. While at Harvard, he not only like really delves into Hebrew, but he also learns many of the other Near Eastern ancient languages and is able to actually write a fairly significant uh, dissertation on on, the, I mean, on subjects of the Near East. Slavery in the time of Hammurabi, right? That's his dissertation eventually. <laughs> and <laughs> he masters Babylonian, Assyrian, you know, Hittite and, and Sumerian he's familiar with. He can read cuneiform. He's not your garden variety armchair intellectual. Right. Right. I mean, he, he's he's the real deal. And early on, he has this reputation as a scholar. And that's what's so interesting is rarely do we have someone who is so academically oriented and yet still becomes a very popular figure and is very much a man of the people. Right. His early ministry experience, though, is is interesting. So he goes to Harvard, but he, he finishes seminary, does receive a call. I hesitate to say part-time, but you know he, he's split between education, parish work, things like that. His early parish work, he is working with German POWs. Why might that be significant? Well, this would be the time of, what, the First World War, right? Right, right. And so you're dealing with, I mean, his... I guess you could say his ethnic, you know, this is his ethnic relations, even though he's never learned German. But then he actually picks, he has learned German so well by this point that he's able actually to minister to these people. Yeah, so he's at Harvard. He's called as assistant pastor to Zion Lutheran Church in Boston. So he's ordained in May of 1917. And then he begins work with these POWs. He becomes a United States Army chaplain from 1918 onward, specifically working with the German prisoners from World War I. He has tremendous success with the, with the Germans, so much so that they eventually shower him with gifts, a notable sculpture of a castle, but then one of his most prized possessions was an early edition of, of the Luther Bible. But here's a man who's comfortable in a Harvard classroom, but also comfortable enough that he can go and visit prisoners of war, endear himself, and actually have great success ministerially with them. So we're starting to see the beginnings of this very much a man of the people, very populist kind of of minister. So we're going to move on quickly. We, You know, Zoe, I thought we could get all this done in one segment. Imagine that. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, th So there we have that. Now, from here, he is going to receive an MA in 1920, 
He's offered a bunch of university teaching positions, but eventually he becomes, I believe the title is General Secretary for the Walther League. Now, what was the Walther League? The Walther League would be one of these lay organizations that had had bigger impact in the earlier years of the Missouri Synod, but they were organized, you know, primarily for like mission work or for dealing with uh, youth and that and those sorts of things. Some of our older listeners who are Missouri Synod may actually remember having Walther Leagues at their churches. The old LCMS youth organization. Right. Kind of wish we had something similar to it today. I mean, you see the massive projects they undertook, the sheer numbers. But as executive secretary of the Walther League, Meyer's celebrity begins to grow. He's writing these editorials for the Walther League Messenger. It's the monthly journal for the Walther League, signing them Wham! So he's already got a nickname early on. Preaching to large crowds, he eventually meets his wife through the Walther League, things like that. But he's getting used to big crowns. He's getting a reputation as being a man who is very good with words, but who is able to effectively communicate the faith in words that anyone can understand. He also is earning a reputation for zeal, his ability to speak out on, shall we say, controversial topics. There's uh, all kinds of great stories about his Walther League time, but he eventually is so persuasive that he can get nearly anything funded. Uh, that's why Wheat Ridge Ministries still exists, a long story you know, his early fundraising efforts. I know he's able to raise something like $200,000 for their sanitarium. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's in, in, you know, in the 20s. You know, and that's an interesting story of itself. Again, time doesn't permit. And really, we maybe maybe on the blog, we'll flesh some of, these, some of these stories out a little bit more. So in 1922, then, Meyer receives the call to become professor of Old Testament at Concordia Seminary. So he's 29 years old, and he's the youngest person in that institution's history, to hold the rank of full professor, at least up until that time. As far as I know, he's still the only one, or still the youngest to, to be full professor. Well, I mean, 29. I mean, that's that's pretty impressive. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so he does resign as executive secretary of the Walter League, but he's still writing for the messenger. So his voice is still out there going to the young people. You know, we're still in the uh, 1920s here. He takes the call. He's not yet finished his doctoral work, but he soon will. You know, during all this time, that's when the Clayton campus is built uh, for Concordia Seminary and things like that. As we're coming up near the break, we've come to something important we've really glossed over. Now he's a professor. But in 1923, Wham writes an editorial for the Walter League Messenger called Why Not a Lutheran Broadcasting Station. He becomes enamored with the idea that this newer. Com- as far as commercially understood, a technology called radio can be used to reach people for Christ. The golden age of radio is a relatively short period of time, 10 to 15 years tops. And the Lutheran hour is going to come about during really the middle of it. Hmm. And it's really going to be seen as significant. It really bowls me over that Wham! becomes so successful in radio. For this very simple reason, he knew nothing of radio theory. He didn't know how it worked, didn't know how things were measured, any of that, any of how the technology worked. And yet he's able to use radio to such great effect, you know, simply through his oratory abilities. And one of the things that I think kind of impresses me about radio and his time on the radio is how quickly he speaks. And I and we'll get into that when we talk about his sermons and, you know, how he actually is on the radio. But that's not really all that conducive, it would seem, it's, it seems counterintuitive to what you would want a radio announcer to be, right? He's, he's speaking so quickly that, I mean, I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, they were even trying to figure out ways to, you know, get him to slow down a little bit. Sure. <laughs> and as a person who's had that same complaint said about him when he was on the radio, I, uh, I can, I understand. <laughs> you, I know you Midwestern types always want us to slow down. Right. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it truly is a, is amazing. He even the inflection of his voice is not typical typical radio, right? But yet, even with all of these things seemingly working against him, the Lord uses his work and his drive and his abilities to accomplish a tremendous thing. Absolutely, you know. So early on, he's able to con- to get a little bit of funding to get a five hundred watt transmitter put up on the campus of Concordia Seminary. That is what we now know as KFUO. And so I believe that that first goes on the air on a Sunday in 1924. Hmm. 
So his, his his first radio broadcasts are not Lutheran Hour broadcasts, but these things that are emanating from just from KF those literal literal first days of KFUO. So with that said, we're going to talk more about Meyer and early radio on the other side of the break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all them that trust in Him. The book that sits on your shelf, The One Gathering Dust, Word Fitly Spoken, asks you to once again take up and read. Hear the words of the only wise God and be saved. We'll be right back. We are back. This is a word fitly spoken. Willie Grill, Zell and Heidi talking the life of Dr. Walter A. Meyer. So we've gotten through his life up until he begins to dip his feet in radio. For time's sake, I'm going to have to really condense things. So here we go. He becomes convinced that radio is a great method for preaching the gospel. Now, they're going to look into what's going to become the Lutheran Hour. And it wasn't as simple back then getting airtime. Airtime was prohibitively expensive. It's not exactly cheap today, but radio time is much cheaper in our day than it is in those days. Lutheran hour is really going to end up being the Lutheran half hour, of course. <laughs> and they they first go to NBC. NBC isn't really interested because they have the chapel of the air or whatever, kind of an ecumenical, very v- soft version of preaching that they have. The Federal Council of Churches actually seeks to bar religious institutions from buying airtime at one point. Meyer will have none of this. He actually fights it. Eventually, they're going to land at CBS radio. And again, the cost to air this is going to be very expensive. And I think, though, this is one of the things that indirectly leads to the Lutheran Hour being so popular because they have to solicit donations for airtime. And what that does is that involves the laity in this work. Uh, you know, I would say in this ministry, to use a loaded term, <laughs> in this radio crusade, as Dr. Meyer used to say. So I wonder if, and again, just speculating, that doesn't help really engage some of those initial listeners who not only enjoy the content, but because of their support are in a way part of it, part of the mission of the Lutheran Hour. I'd certainly say that that would be the case. I mean, if you're going to invest your money in it, you're going to want to see it succeed. Right. But maybe just as a as a quick side note too, I mean they do they do start preaching, I mean in 1930, but because of the prohibitive costs and because of the onset of the depression of course, they're not able to actually have a second season until what 1934. Correct. Yeah, June 1931 until 1934, there is no Lutheran hour because of finances. Right. During this time he gets tons of letters and correspondence asking when the Lutheran hour is going to come back. And it's even in its early days, it's extremely popular. They're receiving more correspondence than even Amos and Andy at the time. <laughs> I'm afraid. Are we allowed to mention Amos and Andy, or will we get kicked off iTunes for that? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but extraordinarily popular. It's off until 1934, and then it comes back, and it just grows and grows each year. So Walter Meyer is going to become, you know, he's, he's going to preach eventually to millions. The broadcast is going to go all over the world, and Meyer is preaching rallies and other things, you know, almost every weekend for a while, just around and around the country. He is speaking to great crowds, and the influence of Lutheran Hour continues. It is by far the most influential and successful religious radio program in its day, arguably the most important and most influential Christian radio program of all time. And we sure. and we forget that because it doesn't quite have the same popular level that it did. The original Lutheran Hour with Meyer 
is popular in, in all kinds of circles. Not that it isn't today, but, but, you know, you don't hear, he's in Time Magazine, he's in Colliers, he's in the Saturday Evening Post. Granted, religion has a greater influence in general, but it's really hard for me to explain in a few minutes on a podcast just how popular this show was in its day. Well, and you'd also mentioned that the reach that he had, and I think not only, because not only was his show being picked up by lots of different stations, and in fact, if you read the books that were printed by Concordia Publishing House of his radio sermons, it talks about these different stations as they were being picked up. But in those days, too, because there was hardly any radio air traffic, his broadcasts, even with a little 500-watt transmitter, were being heard as far away as, like, Toronto. Yeah, in those in those early days. So those early days, though, there's not as much competition. Right. I mean, you know, there's not as much interference, so it's able to go. Yeah, those early early days are very interesting for radio. Actually, I, I believe from the original 500-watt transmitter at KFUL, I think it was picked up as far as Cuba, at least in, in oh, one wow. instance. Yeah. I think. Someone can correct me on that. But that in itself should show not only, I mean, just how far it was going, but also the impact that, you know, that that was able to give him. Right. And it, and it only grows. I mean, he's, you know, he's tens of thousands of letters he's receiving on a regular basis once the Lutheran Hour really takes off. Throughout all this time, and really, really through most of the time that he's doing the Lutheran Hour, he is still writing the Walter League Messenger. He's putting out books. He's, he has a daily, an annual daily devotion that he writes that's published. For part of this time, he's still a professor. He does eventually take a leave of absence from the seminary to do Lutheran Hour speaking full time. But he, but he continues to live on campus and that sort of thing and have an office there. He's working on his Book of Nahum book, his commentary, uh, all throughout this. I mean, he is never, he never slows down. And we've talked about that. We've barely even mentioned his wife and his two sons, which he still manages to make time for throughout all of this. For all of the bemoaning we hear about pastors and 80 hours a week and church workers and things like that, th- th- here's a man who had a very full schedule and managed to keep it together and becomes a national celebrity and manages to keep his piety and his sanity and his good his goodwill. And so I want to kind of end on that as far as biography goes, because that sort of leads us into, into the next segment. But Walter Meyer dies young on January 11th, 1950. So, uh, you know, really everything's still going very strong. Lutheran hour popularity just continues to grow. And then he is taken from us at a young age, 56. So so he is left, and then, you know, there's no need for us in this episode to get into what happens to Lutheran Hour and KFUO and things like that afterwards. But he's one of the earliest examples in the modern era, in the this technological era of a celebrity pastor. He lives a life without any major scandal. There are enemies, and there are people who attack him, and we'll get into that once we talk about preaching style and that kind of thing. What's a positive takeaway we can get from Walter Meyer as a celebrity, Zellin? I think if we're going to deal with his actual fame that he had, and the fact that, like you said, he did have no, he had no major scandals whatsoever, I think it shows that we can actually use situations like that for great good. Obviously, it has the potential for great abuse as well, which I think is what people like to latch on to. But to be able to use a platform like that and to use his celebrity in such a positive way, I think is something that, I don't know, that we can at least appreciate. I don't, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if any of us will ever have that kind of a platform like he ever did. Well, no, I mean, word, word fitly spoken is not hitting those numbers. <laughs> but no, it, it is an example of, or he is an example of not letting it really go to your head. I mean, he, he's still a man, so you know that he had to relish in this somewhat. And, and that's fine, but he also manages to keep his home life in order and keep things in perspective, which I think is is really important for a Christian, especially one who has a status like he does. He kind of becomes the de facto face of Lutheranism in America, too. And that's something that we should be cognizant of simply because we as pastors, Zelwin, are representative of our synod and certainly of our congregations. Sure. But that's at a very local level for most of us. Right. For Meyer, it's it's a global level. And so that's that's the added pressure. But that doesn't mean, simply because he was so popular and beloved by the laity, that his peers 
all really endorsed what he did. Now, he, uh, he did have great support among the rostered clergy of the Missouri Synod for the most part, but there were others who objected to him. And what was their main objection? Well, I think probably their biggest objection would be his preaching style, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. How might they have characterized that? Of course, this is the days of the rise of what is called fundamentalism. Also the days of, I mean, kind of late period revivalism. But the way, the way that he talked and the way that he preached, I think some were characterizing as fundamentalist or as revivalist. And in fact, I think it's really interesting that at a, a fairly late date, he gets into a conflict with Eleanor Roosevelt, of all people. <laughs> right. Because she wrote something kind of nasty about him in some major public venue. Well, she tries to, to basically smear him as a Nazi sympathizer and a fundamentalist in a, in a negative way. Right. And he basically responds back with, yes, I am a fundamentalist. And what he means by that is a fundamentalist with a lowercase f, as he understood it. And so that means that he held to the fundamentals of the faith, things like a belief in miracles, the the virgin birth. You know, it's he's not just simply some kind of, for lack of a better term, a pietistic guy going around just, you know, condemning alcohol and skirts above the ankle. That's that's kind of our erroneous image of a fundamentalist today. That's not what he is. He is a man who holds to the inerrancy of Scripture and to the gospel of justification by faith alone. That is how he uses the term fundamentalist. And if that, if we understand fundamentalism in that sense, lowercase f, as affirming the miracles, as affirming the truth of Scripture, and as affirming the gospel of justification by faith alone, then I will happily wear the label of fundamentalist. And you should too. Same thing with Protestant, for that matter. That's another thing that he liked that gets thrown, that thrown out about him. He led to the Protestantization of, of the Missouri Synod or, or whatever. Well, what are you going to do? We are Lutheran after all. <laughs> it's, it's okay. And maybe I'm just the last living Protestant. I don't know. But it, <laughs> but it is okay to use the P word in the right, right context, in the right understanding. I'm not willing to let the Reformed and everybody else hold the exclusive rights to Protestant. I want that too, because I, to, to this day, I still protest what the Protestants protested. Right. And I'll gladly shake hands with them, because they are my forefathers. And they're, they're every Lutheran's forefathers. We are the original ones. Even even people who you know protest Protestant, as as it were, you know, sometimes we'll try to say things like we are Catholics or we are, you know, evangelical Catholics. And yes, it's true. We are, as some people say, lower C Catholics. You know, we believe what the church has always believed. But why do we balk at words like Protestant, which were used by good men in our church to describe what, you know, what they believed? Why do, why do we fight against that? Yeah. And see, this is this is the problem. We want to put our very recent definitions of things onto the people in the past. And, and there's some kind of, we want to push back against that era of the Missouri Synod for reasons of aesthetics, I think, frankly. Now, before we get into the sum and substance of the preaching, we should understand that Meyer looks a lot like what uh, the pastors of his day look like, black Geneva gown, suits right. and ties. But that's what everybody looked. Now, he is coming up at the time of the liturgical renewal, so you're starting to see cassocks and surpluses and stoles. Not on Walter Meyer, mind you, but <laughs> but upon uh, some of the younger clergy. Um, it's interesting that one of his early workers is Carl Peepcorn, who's known as one of the fathers of the liturgical renewal in the Lutheran Church. Right. I always find that a bit of a paradox, that you have this very low church, Walter Meyer, and then Carl Peepcorn, you know, being a, a great ally early on. That's kind of kind of interesting how things work out. But it's strange. You're looking at a time where orthodoxy, you know, if you were a conservative Lutheran, you were wearing the black gown and possibly a tie. If you were seen as a as a bit wishy-washy, you would be putting on chasubles and things like that. And to put it in our, in our modern terms, the conservatives dressed in the black gown and the liberals wore all of the vestments. And nowadays, the stereotypes have flip-flopped for whatever reason. So said all that to say this, that depending upon where you're at in history, the vestments, the external things, may communicate something totally different depending upon your context. 
And and so they're going to say, well, he 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 preached in a suit or he preached in a t-shirt, like when he was on when he was in the um, the broadcasting room because he sweated so much it was so hot and nobody could see him. And people tried to come down on him for that in those days. But you can't just judge a man simply based upon upon these things. We have far too much of that in the in church life today. And also dealing with his preaching, you know, maybe we don't like his style or something like that. Or maybe well, yeah, we don't that's like... what we're coming to. So we're going to look at, at at what he... So before we get into the content of his preaching, Zellon, in the last few minutes of this segment, then, what was his style? Our listeners probably heard a little bit of it in the introduction, and we'll hear a little bit of it again in the outro of, of this episode. But his style is a very lively, a very a rapid-fire kind of preaching that is it is very stirring to listen to it is the kind of preaching that would be a well-suited i suppose for you know just sitting down and listening to even though it was so fast and he does speak in a way that is i mean when you're speaking to twenty-five thousand people at a rally for example you're going to have a certain way of pre- of speaking even if you aren't preaching yeah it's a different urgency a different emphasis and really, his preaching style really applies to this external thing that I'm talking about. I want to be clear here, just to, just to reiterate, I am not saying that externals are not important. And I'm not saying that good liturgy and good conduct in the chancel are not important things. They are. Or even the way someone speaks. I'm simply saying that can't be the final arbiter of orthodoxy. Right. It, it, it can come into play. Because there are certain things and certain types of worship or worship practices that we could not endorse in good conscience. But again, cannot alone be what we look at. Because if we start casting away anyone who speaks differently or casting away everybody who wore the Geneva gown, we're throwing out a lot of good Lutherans that way. And we don't want to do that. So anyway, so yes, his preaching style by some is called revivalistic. Do you think that that's a fair assessment? Well, again, what do we mean by revivalistic? And I, I, I'm not trying to avoid the question. I'm, I'm honestly certainly, asking certainly. because you know, if if we're just if we're just using these terms in order to denigrate what he's doing, then no, I mean, we can't. We, I mean, that's that's just dishonest. But I mean, is he is he speaking in ways that could be sound that sounds something like the the great revivalists or you know the great capital F fundamentalists? Well, sure, yes, he does. But at the same time, does that mean that he's unorthodox simply because he chooses to speak that way? Well, I, I would hope we would say no. <laughs> exactly. And again, he's one, he's preaching to people in the 30s, the 40s, right. you know. He is, again, preaching on the radio to people who, as far as he knows, may be hearing for the first time or perhaps hearing for the last time. Another thing that he was very much aware of was the fact that the radio audience has an advantage or disadvantage, depending on how you look at it, that someone in the pew does not. It's a lot harder to get up in the middle of a sermon in church and just walk out the door, although people will do it. It's much easier to walk across your living room and flip your radio off, you know, turn your radio off if you don't, or if you don't like what you're hearing. That's why you'll see early in his sermons, he's very much trying to capture the attention, trying to project that urgency so that the audience would stay. It is very much a rhetorical style intended to keep a radio audience listening. Now, that's good. You have to do that. A good preacher understands rhetoric and understands his audience. That does not deny the role of the Holy Spirit in conversion and working through the Word. Meyer absolutely understands that, as we'll see when we look at his sermons. He understands it's the Holy Ghost working. Nevertheless, if we don't believe in rhetoric, if we don't believe even in things as simple as inflection or projection, or however we want to look at it, then we're going to be like the apocryphal version of Jonathan Edwards, reading our sermons in a monotone, you know, so that we don't stifle the spirit. And and none of us today sincerely do things like that. Or even, or intentionally give our sermons that way. It is very much a case of understanding your audience and communicating in what you see as the most effective way. And as you said before, Zelenio preaching to a crowd of 25,000 at a rally is different than preaching to a hundred people in the pews on a Sunday. It's different from preaching to an individual on a, on a shut in call, for example, or the hospital bed. 
I mean, none of us speak quite as loudly to someone on their deathbed in the hospital as we do from the pulpit on Sunday, I hope. You know, unless they're just really hard of hearing. It's just the different contexts call for different approaches. Right. And I think that's largely what we see here when it comes to the speed, his inflection, his use of illustration. Wonderful illustrations. Too. Wonderful illustrations. And he actually kept files, like handy files of illustrations to use. And it was several file cabinets full of them that his secretary organized so that he was never without something. So, you know, he was always thinking about and always filing away these illustrations so that he might use them when preaching, which sounds a little bit, you know, compulsive, but it's actually quite a good, quite a good discipline now that I think about it. <laughs> so we're coming up on the break here. On the other side, we're going to talk about acceptance language, what to do with it, and take a look at the wording of at least one of his sermons. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. The word of the Lord says, Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. You can check out all of the Word Fitly Spoken podcasts on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app. We'll be right back. And welcome back to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, Zelwyn Heidi, talking Dr. Walter A. Meyer. We talked about his style a bit, and now we're coming to the thing that's probably most controversial for our listeners, and that is his acceptance language, where he says things like, accept Christ, accept this offer, receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And for many, that smacks of revivalism or even worse, Arminianism. And so they want to try to associate Meyer with, say, Finney, right? Or even a Billy Sunday, who admittedly Meyer admired, or even a Billy Graham, who was greatly influenced by Walter Meyer. Zellman, what should we do with this kind of language? Should we be concerned about this in the preaching of Walter Meyer? Is it possible that a professor called during the era of Francis Pieper at the seminary, could be an Arminian. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess it all depends on what you're trying to do with that question. And again, I'm not trying to be evasive, I promise. We have to, first of all, deal with Meyer as he is in his own time. And I think that's the first step that we need to take. But we also need to recognize that language like accept, as much as we might balk at it, is the kind of language, or at least words like it, that we do encounter in places like Holy Scripture. We can't get around that. Yeah. And to be fair, it has been co-opted by some into an Arminian or semi-Pelagian understanding, whereby your decision or your will, you know, whatever we want to, however we want to understand it, is what creates your salvation. It's it's basically been co-opted by those with a synergistic view of conversion and justification. That doesn't mean, though, that the terminology is bad because Scripture does use this kind of language at times. Now, it doesn't say something like, accept Jesus into your heart, which we would take issue with, but it does It does say things like, what, Zelwyn? What's a, what's a good example? Well, an example that I constantly think of would be like Acts 16 with the Philippian jailer. When he encounters Paul and Silas, he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Okay? So the the point is, is that to the question that the jailer himself asks, the apostles tell him, this is what you have to do. And I know we kind of, again, we kind of 
push back against that. We say, you know, the gospel isn't about what we do. And that's true. We cannot save ourselves. But we can't get around the fact that the scriptures do use imperatives. They do use commands in the context of the gospel. Believe. Be baptized. Do these things and you will be saved. Repent. You know, Repent. <laughs> those sorts of things. I mean, Colossians 2, 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. We shouldn't be afraid of this language because problematic, heterodox, or even heretical teachers have used it. Because firmly orthodox men have used it too. Now, when you look at Wham's sermons, you'll see him constantly talk about the Holy Ghost converting people and praying that the Holy Spirit would do so. That is how we understand that. The Holy Spirit is what enlivens us and awakens us and enables us to believe. The Holy Spirit is what gives faith and is what creates that new man through the Word of God. And that new man accepts and believes the gospel. That is true. I mean, the Solid Declaration says that. Right. Right. I mean, and this is really the point of bringing up all these Bible passages, too. I mean, you have Peter in the Sermon of Acts, in Acts 2 as well, and you repent and be baptized. Yeah. Well, in in answer to the question, what shall we do? Yeah. What shall we do? Do this. If someone asks you this, and Zelman, you've had it happen, I've had it happen, what must I do to be saved? How can I be saved? And even, see, this is how far we've come and, and how calcified we've become. We have so let revivalism and crusades affect us that even the word be saved we are afraid of well be i'm saved well that sounds that sounds evangelical that sounds you know revivalistic but it's not can you as a lutheran say i am saved i hope so i hope so and i hope so and i hope that you can articulate how and why and by what means that's the glory of being protestant isn't it that's the glory of having a reformation faith that I can say with assurance, I am saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus. Right. Let's let's stop letting good good things be co-opted by by bothersome men. You know, without putting anybody specifically down. But with with regard to Walter Meyer, we do have a number of examples. Zelwyn, should I go ahead and read one of them just so that people can know what we're talking about? Well, yeah, I, I think you should just to give something something to work with here. So go ahead. So this is the final paragraph, the concluding paragraph in a Lutheran Hour broadcast reading from Walter Meyer's, uh, excuse me, a copy of one of Meyer's uh, manuscripts, his broadcast manuscripts. The title of the sermon is The True Freedom from Want in Christ. The text is simply this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 23, verse 1. This is at the 14th page in the last paragraph. Again, paragraphs, though, a little bit long when you're reading Walter Meyer. So here we go. Today, the Good Shepherd wants to assume leadership in your lives, and I have only two minutes left in this broadcast in which to repeat that appeal. Yet tremendous decisions can be made even in that short time. In two minutes, Peter denied his Lord. In two minutes, Judas gave him the traitor's kiss. In two minutes, the thief on the cross heard the promise, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. In two minutes, the terrified jailer and Philippi both asked the question which, I pray God, is ready to leap from your lips. What must I do to be saved? And heard the answer, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. In two minutes, you today may send your soul on the road to hell, or, by accepting the Lord Jesus Christ, be brought on the road to heaven through faith in Jesus, who says, I am the way the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. These two minutes are almost over. O God, grant that the Holy Spirit has awakened the fire of an unquenchable faith in your heart by which you kneel before your Savior to confess your sins, but to declare, O Jesus, crucified for me, risen for me, thou art my good and gracious Savior Shepherd. I shall not want, either in time or in eternity, for thou art mine, and from this moment I am thine. God guide you all to that glory, for Jesus, the good shepherd's sake. Amen. I also need to read from a manuscript. It feels good. <laughs> in front of a microphone again, you know? Yep, yep. It, it was, it's good.
So we have a number of things going on, right, Zelwyn? You you do have the language of accept, decision even. You right. have, you may send your soul on the road to hell or by accepting the Lord Jesus be brought on the road to heaven. Now, what do we make of that? It certainly sounds like then he's saying that our decision is what determines our eternal fate. But note that he says towards the end, God grant that the Holy Spirit has awakened the fire of an unquenchable faith so that you're able to declare. Yes. And that's, I think that's really the key here. If we're going to understand him fairly, yes, he does use language of decision and accept, but he also recognizes that you are not able to decide or to accept unless the Holy Spirit has worked in you. Right. And even an Arminian would say that to some degree, but we have to understand this is Meyer, a professor at the seminary, again, doesn't guarantee orthodoxy by any means, but it certainly you know, speaks to his credentials. A professor, a man who is teaching pastors, a man who certainly understands what Lutheranism is. Right. And you, you also have something like this. In two minutes, you may send your soul on the road to hell or, by accepting Jesus, be brought on the road to heaven. So it does seem there, again, you know, in a subtle way, he's putting damnation on your part, but the salvation is you, you receive Jesus and he, and he has brought you and he brings you onto the road of salvation. Now, we hardly agree that damnation is our doing. Right. I mean, God judges us, but it's, it's our rejection of what God has done. And I realize it might seem like we're trying to just play word games here, but, you know, there is a way, I believe, that we can accept this language of Myers and not fall into Arminianism because I don't believe he did. And it's exactly as you say, this understanding that the Holy Spirit must awaken you. And we've already shown from Scripture there are imperatives, and we've shown, or we've mentioned at least in the Confessions, that it understands that the new man is what lays hold of these things. The new man does cooperate with the Holy Spirit. The new man does accept the things of God. And so you have to understand it that way. But from human experience, it doesn't seem that way all the time. We believe 100% according to the scriptures, according to the Lutheran confessions, that salvation is purely passive, right? Amen. And yet, there's still the imperative in the gospel. Repent, believe, be baptized. All wrought by the Holy Spirit. All gifts of the Holy Spirit. And yet, from our perspective, we're still believing, right? We're still accepting that baptism. Receiving, or or receiving, I guess, if that's a more comfortable word. I mean, but but that's just the point here, is that when you're dealing with the new man, the new will in man, what has been converted, what has been changed, he does listen to the command of God, and God does command us to believe. We should not shy away from that kind of language. There is no salvation apart from faith in Christ. All right? Right. You have to have faith. God delivers that faith through his means, through baptism, the Lord's Supper, through the preached word. God is always working through his word to create and sustain faith. But that faith is given to you, ergo that faith is yours, and that faith lays lays hold of the promises that God gives. There is no salvation apart from faith. By faith you're justified. I think we should be okay in saying that. I think... It's kind of our thing. I mean, we are Lutheran, so. (laughs) Man is justified by faith. Kind of a big deal. Romans. Whole Reformation about that. You know, never mind. And yet we want to so, we want to overthink it sometimes, and, and, and in a good way. We don't want to be false teachers. We don't want to give false impressions, right? Right. And yet when you're looking at the context of Wham, where he's preaching to a radio audience, who, as I said before, This might be the first time they're hearing this. This might be the last time they're hearing this. There's a sense of urgency to it. But really, ought there not be a sense of urgency anyway? The fact that we don't engage... We're even afraid of the word evangelism. We're afraid to evangelize. Part of it is because we don't want to sound like Billy Graham, or we don't want to sound revivalistic. Truly, I I do think that that's part part of the issue. And so when someone comes up to us and says, what must I do to be saved? We first begin with something like, well, ontologically, a human is X. And blah, blah, you know, we, when do we go with that? And, and when instead, the question should be, 
something like, are you a sinner? You know, first do this. Okay. If the, if you have if there's no contrition evident, usually somebody, if they're asking what must I do to be saved, their conscience is already cut to the quick. Right. Sure. So, right. So they're coming to you saying, I know I'm a sinner. What must I do? If you say anything to them other than repent and be baptized, like in Acts 2, or even a simple believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're not doing your job. You're not doing too well, okay? Because you've already overthought this. Give them Jesus. (laughs) Christ Jesus has died for you. Believe in this and trust in this. You can say that and not be an Arminian. Trust in the promises of God. Okay, trust in the finished work of Christ. Now, beyond that... How do you preach to someone who doesn't know? Do you come to them and go, well, okay, according to the second use of the law, you are a trans, you know, or something like that? No, you preach the law, preach the Ten Commandments, and show them their sin, and then try, please, try, please, to show them that they are sinners. Because unless they know they're sinners, they're not going to understand the gospel. They won't know that they need forgiveness. And then present the gospel as clearly and simply as we can. The genius of Meyer was that he was a profound intellect and a great academic who communicated the faith in a non-traditional way at times. And I think that's okay. You need to be able to communicate the gospel in a way that anyone can understand it. And the way you explain it to a, to a college professor is different from the way that you're going to explain it to a farmer. And that's okay. You need to understand you're not going to be able to use the same exact words in every case. Right, Zelwyn? Right, right. And I think I think sometimes the danger that we also run into with this is that we've become so, I, I don't even know how to put it, we've become so focused on the words and how things are formulated that we forget that to actually get around to proclaiming it. Yeah, and you're proclaiming simply... That finished work of Christ, whereby he, Christ is reconciling the world through his sacrificial life, death, and his resurrection. Okay, and, and something as simple as that is what we need to be able to say. But we get so bogged down into, for whatever reason, I hope it's because we want to please God by, by having right doctrine. That's, what, that's a good thing. Right. And a pastor right. does want to do that. I hope it's not trying to please some audience out there or some other person by trying to sound right or some party or whatever. That should not concern us. If you are concerned about your doctrine, you're concerned for two reasons. The first is being true to God. And the second is communicating that true doctrine clearly to the people who need it. I mean, and that's the rub with, with Meyer. That's what makes a lot of us uncomfortable or makes some people uncomfortable. I'm okay. <laughs> it's it's that that he says things in the language of people that we don't really feel a fellowship with <laughs> or that we just okay. plain aren't in fellowship with, right? Sure. And so we say, well, if if Billy Graham says accept and Walter Meyer says accept, then somehow Meyer must have the theology of Billy Graham. And I just don't think that that's fair historically. And I don't think that, and it's not even a thing, it's just clear from Meyer's writings that he's not an Arminian. Right, right. And, and all that said then, if the language is so loaded, and if the language does cause such exacerbation on the end of some people, is there anything good that we can take away from Meyer's sermons? Well, I mean, just just reading them... I think is a tremendous blessing in itself. And I mean, okay, so maybe maybe you still don't like the language. Okay, whatever. But the 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 way that he words things, the urgency that he has, the wonderful examples that he has, the great fervor for evangelism that he has, I mean, there's still so much to admire in what he does. And I don't think that we should just allow even even if we don't you know, even if you aren't convinced by what we're saying in in this podcast, at least realize that what Meyer is doing does have a tremendous impact upon the religious scene, and very often for for very good things. I mean, we we cannot we cannot get away from the fact that he is doing something that did have a a bring a great deal of blessing to a great many people because he was so talented, because he was able to do uh, such great things, right? Absolutely. And 
I wish that we had more Lutherans who were such an influence on the society like he was. It's not a bad thing that Billy Graham was listening to him and was a follower of his by any stretch of the imagination. But ultimately, Billy doesn't become a confessional Lutheran. I understand that. Meyer is doing is really a pioneer. He's blazing trails, and he does have a testimony that goes before him. Both of his sons become notable figures within the church, and uh, his grandsons as well. You know, there's a legacy there too. If you don't like his legacy as a preacher, what about his legacy as a husband and as a father? What about this great volume that he writes on marriage, whereby he takes a very traditional stance that would make even some conservative Lutherans today a bit uncomfortable? because right. of his orthodoxy. He, he is very much a man with a lot of positives to him. And yet, because of associations with later things, and because of associations with some with, with spurious associations with some earlier things, people have tried to, to tarnish his reputation. But you have a man who spoke against militarism in a time when it was very unpopular, he spoke against militant atheism. He spoke against the degenerate morals of the day in a way that many of our, you know, socio-political prophets wouldn't even do today. I mean, right. th- there's a lot to laud with Walter Meyer. And I don't think we do ourselves as a service by writing him off because of acceptance language and because of style and because he uses words like fundamental or fundamentalist. I just frankly don't think that that's, that does any of us any good. I'm continually perplexed. I'm not really perplexed because I understand what's happening. It's just a little bit disheartening that men will say, I can't read Walter Meyer. He wears a suit. He's a fundamentalist. He's a revivalist. But in the same breath, breath will praise a modern pope's theology because of liturgy and supposed sacramentalism as if that office is now no longer antichrist or as if because externally they may resemble us more now or something like that. Or they'll take any other theologian who is so far outside of our fellowship and extend an extreme amount of charity, but won't extend even a mustard seeds worth of charity to men within their own fellowship. But I don't want to end on that. That's negative. I'm just saying, folks, Go read this. It's a it's a period in time of great growth for the Missouri Synod, of great agency, of great even social action, if that's your thing. Great evangelistic effort. It's definitely something to look at and see what we can glean from it. And at the end of the day, if you can glean anything from it, it's this zeal to go out and to fulfill the Great Commission, to go out to preach the gospel, the necessity of the evangelistic task that's given to each and every pastor to bear witness, and really every layman is is to bear witness too, but especially for pastors. You ought to be preaching the law, you ought to be preaching the gospel, and you ought to pray that through the word and through your preaching, God would continually bring souls to Christ, be it a new convert or be it the continual turning that each Christian faces daily by drowning the old Adam, you know, and letting the new man hold sway. Zoan, any last words? I think you've you've said it very well. I mean, we we don't want to allow a lack of charity to cloud over the great good that Walter Meyer has done for the Missouri Synod. And even if there are still things that we, you know, maybe we can honestly quibble with, at least recognizing that he has been a tremendous and a positive force for good. Um, in ways that we may not even have access to anymore. And I think that we can give uh, thanks to God for Dr. Meyer, for Wham, the first, as it were, for all that he has done and for all that he that he accomplished, because it was for the greater glory of God. Absolutely. And before we close out, just let me leave you with these few words from Scripture. Romans chapter 10. But what saith it? The word is near to thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach, that thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? 
And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi. God love you, and God bless. No era has been productive of more uncertainty and despair than this, that the atonement of Jesus must be completed by human endeavor. The great message that the churches of our country must shout from the housetops and broadcast from coast to coast is not the immature discussion of social, cultural, economic, moralizing questions, but the triumphant summoning of the nation back to the completed salvation of the cross. When everything else is gone and forgotten, that cross will be remembered. My friends in the ministry, preach that cross, teach that cross, live that cross, exalt that cross. The world will thank you little for it, nor will it long remember your self-denial and courage. But in some solemn hours, when human souls approach the threshold of the next world, their faith will bless your loyalty. It has well been called the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. This heaven-born scripture-grounded teaching of the all-sufficient universal grace and the salvation completed at Calvary. Build your church on that rock, your sermons on that theme, your theology in implicit obedience to this word of God, and then not even the gates of hell, combined with the cunning of men, and the strategy of organized opposition will prevail against you.